please join me in welcoming Michael Pollan. So, are you um, happy to just talk to us for a bit about, in a way, what the genesis of this book was and why it is that now something that, in a way, had been pushed aside at the beginning of the 70s, why it is back at the top of a lot yeah. of menus? Sure. Yeah, why don't I start by, th first, to thank you all for coming. It's, it's wonderful to see so many faces here and, uh, uh, and to be here in London. Um, so it was, this was a bit of a departure for me. My last three or four books were about food and agriculture. Uh, and I was very interested in the public health and environmental crises that uh, caused by our food system. And I, and I remain interested in that. But um, I, I've always seen my work, including the food work, as really an exploration of nature and our engagement with the natural world. Uh, food is the thing, our, our food choices affect nature more than anything else we do. Um, whether you're talking about the composition of species on the planet or the atmosphere or the disposition of the landscape. Um, and uh, so that's why I got into food, because if you, if you think of my work as a tree, or at least a shrub, um, food is one important branch. But the, the, the mainstay is really nature and how we change nature and how nature changes us. So part of that relationship for uh, all of history and all throughout the world has been this very interesting fact that humans use plants and fungi to change consciousness. Uh, most of us have used a plant that way today, whether it was something as simple as coffee or chocolate or tea uh, or a cigarette, or cannabis, or whatever. And this is an abiding human desire. Uh, the only culture that has been found that doesn't use a plant or fungus to change consciousness are the Inuit, the Eskimos. And that's because nothing good grows where they live. It's the only reason. As soon as they move to Canada, they get with the program. Um, so this is something fundamental about us. And, I, and it's always struck me as a curious human desire. like. Why, you know, you understand why we would use plants for uh, nourishment, um, but use them to change consciousness? Is that really so adaptive? Um, what good is that for us? What good is it for the plants? So that's always been in the background of my work and interest as a writer about nature. And then a couple years ago, I started hearing about these really curious-sounding studies being done to uh, see if psilocybin, the ingredient in magic mushrooms, could be used to heal people uh, as a tool in mental health care. And this, the study I read about first was taking place in New York and in, at Johns Hopkins in uh, Baltimore. And they were giving psilocybin to people who had cancer diagnoses, many of them terminal. Uh, and the idea was to help them deal with their, what they, the doctors called their existential distress, their anxiety, depression, and fear at the prospect of, of dying. Um, this struck me as the weirdest idea uh, and, and, and just almost implausible that uh, I couldn't imagine if I had a terminal cancer diagnosis, the first thing I'd want to do is trip, um, you know, because it would mean, no doubt, a confrontation with your death and it would be a very dark experience, I would imagine. 
But I, I, uh, I followed up and, and started interviewing some of the volunteers in these trials, and I heard the most amazing stories from people. Um, I'll, I'll just tell you one as an example, because I can do this efficiently, but there's a, there was a woman I talked to, uh, her name was Dinah Baser. She was 60 years old. She was a figure skating instructor in Manhattan, and she'd never used psychedelics before, and she had ovarian cancer, and she'd been treated for it, um, but nevertheless, and she was in remission, but she was paralyzed by fear that it would come back, that the other shoe was going to drop any day, and she really was non-functional. Uh, she heard about this trial at NYU and enrolled and was given a guided psilocybin uh, session. Um, and it's important to understand the way these drugs are being used therapeutically, whether above ground or underground, is, it, is very different perhaps than your image of how one might take, ingest a, a psychedelic. There's always, you're always guided. There are, in the university trials, two people, uh, a man and a woman. They're with you the whole time. They prepare you very carefully for what's about to happen. Uh, and they give you some, what they call flight instructions. Um, and that is, uh, so for example, if you run into trouble, um, don't run away. If you feel yourself going crazy, dying, uh, your ego is dissolving, go with it. Don't resist it. It's when you resist it that you get very anxious and paranoid. Um, so they say, you know, relax your mind and float downstream, surrender, trust, um, be open. Uh, and that's very important advice, actually. And they help you set an intention. Um, you know, I want to confront my mortality or I want to explore my mind or I want to deal, I want to break an addiction, whatever it is. And then during the experience, they're there with you. You're blindfolded, actually. You have eye shades on, which is also to people who have experience of psychedelics. seems like a very weird, wrong thing. But the idea is to make it a very internal trip. Uh, so you deal with your issues and not just, you know, respond to what your senses are bringing in. You're listening to music, however, which is um, very, a remarkably important element in the psychedelic experience uh, in this context. And that's blocking out other sounds, your sense of place, take, allowing you to go somewhere else. But it also kind of orchestrates the experience if the music is well chosen um, and supports it. And then, uh, so they're there with you. If anything goes wrong, they're there to hold a hand, help you get up and go to the bathroom, um, uh, get a sip of water. Uh, but they don't say very much. The idea is that your mind should go where it's going to go. And, and, and they're very interested in that path. And then after the experience, um, which lasts about five or six hours, they, uh, you come back the next day and they help you integrate. Uh, and that is essentially making sense of an experience that you might be tempted to just kind of put in a box called weird drug experience. Mm -hmm. But in fact, it's, a, it's not a product of that molecule. It's a product of your mind. And it is worth making sense of and figuring out how you can apply whatever lessons you learn to the conduct of your life. So that's a very important part of the process. So that's the guided psychedelic experience in a nutshell. Um, and Dina's experience, like many of the cancer patients, she went into her body imaginatively and traveled around, and she saw something that surprised her. And that was a black mass underneath her rib cage. This was not her cancer, obviously, since it wasn't in the right place. But she immediately recognized what it was. It was her fear. 
It was a black mass of fear. And when she saw it, she got really angry. And she screamed at it. And imagine the two guides sitting with her who don't know what's going on in her mind. Suddenly this, this small, timid woman shouts, Get the fuck out of my body! And with that, it, it evaporates. It just vanishes. Um, and I wrote, I, I initially wrote an article in The New Yorker about this experiment and um, that led to the book. And I wrote in my account of this, in the weaselly way of journalists trying to, you know, satisfy the fact checkers, uh, that her fear was substantially diminished. And when the New Yorker fact checkers called her, um, they, they read her the line and she said, no, he got it wrong. That's completely wrong. My fear was eliminated, extinguished. Uh, so I, I gladly changed it. And, um, uh, and she told me when I interviewed her that um, what she, the, her epiphany in this experience was that although she couldn't control her cancer, she could control her fear. And that distinction really changed her life. Um, and one of the hallmarks of the psychedelic experience, or the mystical experience, as William James would say, is that the insights you have have a very special authority. Mm -hmm. uh, he called it the noetic quality. And um, these are like revealed truths or tablets that come down from on high, even if they sound kind of banal to us, like smoking's really stupid. I mean, that's a, that's a common one that the... Um, the smokers trying to quit had, um, but it has now this authority that allows you to act on it. So I talked to a lot of these cancer patients and I got more and more curious. Many of them had spiritual experiences. She did actually. Um, Dinah also said that she had an ecstatic experience after, this, after her fear vanished. And she said, she told me she'd been, she was an atheist. And she said she had an experience of being bathed in God's love. And I said, so you're no longer an atheist? She said, no, I'm still an atheist. And I said, well, how can you be bathed in God's love as an atheist? And she said, we just don't have a word big enough for what I felt. So I'm using the word we have, the biggest word we have. Uh, I thought that was kind of moving. And um, so I was learning about this and, and seeing that psilocybin had some utility as a tool. You know, I think most people in the culture still assume that Psychedelics, if, you, if, you, if you're thinking about psychedelics in the context of mental health, the main image is psychedelics can make you go crazy. Yeah. The idea that psychedelics could make you go sane is just not yet established. <laughs> but there is very interesting, suggestive uh, research suggesting that that is the case. Um, and it's being done here at Imperial College. There's a very important team doing work on uh, depression treatment-resistant depression, uh, and there is a very important team at Johns Hopkins, NYU, UCLA, uh, and there will soon be teams all over America and all over Europe testing the, uh, the early findings of these studies to see whether this, uh, these, these drugs, these medicines, should be part of the pharmacopoeia. And, but, so I want to finish your yeah. question. I'm sorry. You, yeah, so why now? So I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, that's why now for me, right, learning about this. But why now for society? Why now for medicine? I think the reason is um, that mental health treatment is really in crisis. Um, I don't know if... I, I didn't realize just how serious a problem we have. You know, I worked, as, as you have, on chronic disease mm -hmm. and all the problems related to diet. 
The problems related to mental health are, are enormous, um, and they probably have some of the same causes, mm -hmm. but, um, but other causes as well. Um, there are 300 million people suffering with major depression in the world right now. It has become, according to the WHO, the leading cause of disability worldwide is depression. Suicide rates, and we had this illustrated to us last week in America, suicide rates are climbing, addiction rates are climbing. Uh, the increase in depression just since 2005 has been 18 uh, percent over about 10 years. Um, and we don't have very good tools. The SSRI antidepressants, which are really the last big innovation, takes you back to the late 80s, early 90s. There's been very little since then. And those are not working as well as they did at the beginning. Uh, many patients uh, complain about the side effects, the difficulty of getting off them. They are addictive. Um, and that their, their value fades over time. Um, so we need new tools. We need new innovation. And, um, and along comes this surprising one. Uh, and, you know, if you think about mental health care and you compare it to any other branch of medicine, okay, infectious disease, oncology, cardiology, all of which have, have made incredible strides in the last 20 or 30 years, have increased lifespan, reduced human suffering in important ways. You can't say that about mental health care. It's a harder problem in some ways, but the fact is it hasn't been innovated in a while. So uh, I think that's why right now there is a receptivity to this research, uh, government support for it, not financial, but the regulators are uh, surprisingly open. They've actually surprised the researchers in their eagerness to see these trials expand, and, 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 and they've been approving them. Um, so we may be on the threshold of a, of a, you know, the researchers think a revolution in mental health care uh, due to psilocybin. Now, why psilocybin and not LSD, some of you may be asking. Well, it's much less controversial. Most people haven't heard of psilocybin. Uh, and um, also the trip only lasts like six hours. With LSD, you'd have to pay a lot of overtime to your therapist. <laughs> you know, they want to get home for dinner, so they prefer to work with psilocybin. Okay, so that's where we are now. So let's just, um, your book is really fascinating as it takes us through the history, because when you started to dig into it, you found, of course, that prior to the 1960s and Timothy Leary, there had been yeah. a massive amount of extremely serious research done yeah. on LSD. That was a big surprise to me. So. Like a lot of people, I think, I thought psychedelics kind of begins in the 1960s. That's when we certainly started to hear about it. Um, and, and Timothy Leary has like sucked up all the oxygen in the room and, and really led people to believe that serious LSD research began and ended with him. Uh, and that's absolutely not the case. Um, there was a, a very productive, fertile period of research in the 1950s. Uh, that was going on in England, in Canada, and in the United States. Um, and it was an interesting period because this drug had kind of exploded upon the West. Nobody knew what it was good for. Um, when LSD was discovered um, or invented by a, a brilliant chemist named Albert Hoffman at uh, Sandoz Laboratory in Switzerland, he accidentally ingested some, realized he had something of note, uh, and... Um, uh, proceeded to take a larger dose, 250 <laughs> micrograms, and had a had really the first LSD trip in history, and the only one uncontaminated by any expectations. 
And he was, uh, it was a very disturbing trip. He, the, the furniture was coming to life and it was very menacing. And he's, his, his mind left his body and floated up to the ceiling and looked down at him. And uh, it turned and became much more positive uh, a little later. But he realized he had found, he had discovered a, a really powerful psychotropic drug, but he had no idea what to do with it. So what Sandoz did, and this sparked this period of research in the 50s, was they kind of crowdsourced some research and development and basically told researchers and therapists all over the world, if you're willing to tell us what you learn, we will give you all the Sandoz LSD-25 you would like. That's such an amazing fact. That's I know. So amazing. And all you really had to do was have some really cool stationery, and <laughs> they would send you a shitload of the stuff. And there were uh, researchers and psychiatrists all over the world experimenting with it. And, and, and over the course of the decade, they kind of figured out what it was and, and how it might be useful. And what were they using it for? I mean, they had that huge experiment in... Alberta, didn't they? Yeah, Saskatchewan yeah. was a, a real center. So there was a couple, at first they thought, they called it a psychotomimetic, okay, a drug that mimics psychosis. And they really thought that they were, you could, you could observe psychosis, induce it, and that that would be useful in some ways in terms of understanding schizophrenia. And the therapist could take it to understand what it was like to be, as they said, in the skin of a madman. Um, but the, the therapists all took it themselves, and that was at the time normal procedure. In fact, it was considered the ethical thing to do. Before you tried it on anybody else, you had to try it on yourself. This is the history of medicine until recently. Um, and they would take it and realize, eh, I don't think this is psychosis. This feels much better than that. Um, and uh, so they, they gave up that paradigm, and then they tried a psycholytic paradigm, uh, which was a kind of low-dose therapy that was very popular in Los Angeles all through the 50s and into the 60s. And this was a dose of about 50 or 60 micrograms. Um, it, was, it was not so high that you couldn't sit in a chair and converse with your therapist, but it was high enough that it, 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 it lowered your inhibitions, you know, your defenses, so you were able to bring up repressed material and talk about it in a... In an, in an easier way, in a more comfortable way. And this is the therapy that Cary Grant famously mm -hmm. had. He had 60 of these sessions and pronounced himself a, uh, a born again. Uh, but also uh, Jack Nicholson went through this and Stanley Kubrick went through this, Andre Previn. It was a, it was a thing to do in L.A. And, um, and they were getting pretty good results. And then meanwhile, you alluded to this uh, work by an English psychiatrist working in Saskatchewan because the hospital in... London said he couldn't do this work anymore, so he moved to Saskatchewan. He was so dedicated to psychedelics. And um, in his lab or hospital, they kind of worked out the protocols that I just described mm. earlier of, of a guided psychedelic trip. They understood that giving these drugs to people, say LSD, in a hospital room with fluorescent lights and uh, you know white coats just was not right, and that the, the experience was so heavily inflected by your setting, your set. What these are Leary's terms: your set and setting, your internal mindset and your external circumstance, that you better work on that. So they brought flowers into mm -hmm. the room, they brought music into the room, they made it look more like a living room than a hospital room, and they found they started getting much better results. And they were treating addicts. Depressive. Alcoholics was yeah. a very big part of what they were doing, and they were getting good results. There was a whole wing of a hospital in Vancouver that was dedicated to treating alcoholics, and 
they would fly up from LA and, and be treated. Um, and then they were treating people with depression and anxiety and obsessive compulsive so disorder. Essentially what they were doing was treating the kind of diseases. I mean, I'm an alcoholic who hasn't had a drink for thankfully a very long time, but that you know, we always used to say insanity, definition of insanity, doing the same thing over again and expecting a different result. Like you're in that groove and you can't see can't get out you of can't it. get out of the groove yeah. and, and, and the psychedelic in the right space has the power to get you out of that groove. Yeah, you know, the indications, yes, yes that's right. Um, the indications that it seems to work best for share this quality of obsessive thinking, of, of these loops of rumination, and these very destructive stories we tell ourselves about ourselves, such as, I can't get through the day without a drink. Or I'm no good. Or I'm no good. I'm unworthy of love. And our egos tell these stories. They're, they're, not, they're not helpful. They're very destructive. And, and so they're all illnesses characterized by a rigidity of thinking, a kind of stu a mental stuckness. And what the psychedelics appear to do, and we can talk about this in neuroscientific terms, but in everyday lay terms, they, they uh, appear to, um, as one scientist put it, definitely not scientifically, shake the snow globe of the mind, um, reboot it in some sense. So you do... Ellen, do you want to put the slide up? We've got this amazing slide of the psilocybin. Oh, this is the map. I have to set this up a little bit. Yeah. Okay. So what happens when you... Uh, so we're going to talk about neuroscience for a second, I think. Do Judging the neuroscience, that. and then yeah. we'll come back okay. to the... So what's going on in the mind on a psychedelic? We, we had no idea. We knew it affected the serotonin 2A receptor, but beyond that, we knew very little. Uh, and it's work done uh, by a, a brilliant young neuroscientist named Robin Carhart Harris and his colleagues at Imperial College where they began imaging the minds, uh, the brains of people taking psilocybin. They would give you an injection of psilocybin and slide you into an fMRI. So we have to, you know, applaud these volunteers for being willing to do that. The good news is you get free psilocybin. The bad news is you have to have it in an MRI scanner. Um, and, uh, and they found something really interesting that I have to tell you before you really study this, because this is a different image. Uh, this comes later. What surprised them was they expected to see lots of fireworks in the brain, uh, consistent with the, the visual and auditory fireworks people feel. But in fact, they found that one particular brain network was depressed, uh, down-regulated. And that's something called the default mode network. I had never heard of the default mode network, but it's a, it's a part of the brain that, that overrides everything else. And the brain is a hierarchical system. This is at the top of the hierarchy. It links parts of the cerebral cortex, which is the evolutionarily newest part of the brain, to deeper, older centers of memory and emotion. It's a transit hub of the brain, and most of the connections between different networks pass through it. Uh, Robin ca calls it the orchestra conductor of the neural symphony. And when you take that offline, some interesting things happen. First of all, you need to know that the default mode network is very involved with the generation of the sense of self, that, that illusion, what is probably an mm -hmm. illusion. So that um, different structures in it are involved with self-reflection and self-criticism and rumination. It's where our minds go to wander. Time travel, uh, where we are able to think about the, the future and the past. Um, and uh, theory of mind, the ability to impute mental states to other beings, uh, especially other people, so important to moral reasoning and ethical reasoning. 
and something called the experiential or narrative self, which, which is where the stories, these stories we tell ourselves that allow us to think we have a consistent self over time are generated and, and how new information is connected to those stories. Um, so you take this away and a couple of things happen. One is your sense of self diminishes and in, in certain cases where you've had a high dose, absolutely dissolves. And they can correlate the imagery uh, when, when you show a big drop of activity in the default mode network, the person reports, I lost my sense of self. I, I, was, I was completely dissolved. The other thing that happens, and that's where this comes in, is that the brain reconnects in a new way. It rewires itself. So without the uh, default mode network riding herd, each of these circles is a different brain network, okay? The visual cortex, the motor centers, you know, there, you've got all these different networks in your brain. Normally, there's a couple main lines of connection, these big highways, most of which pass through the default mode network. Take it offline, and suddenly all these brain networks start talking to each other, and many of whom have never talked to each other before. And you get things like synesthesia, the, you know, the ability mm -hmm. to, to, to see a sound or smell a sound, which is very common on psychedelics. Uh, you get, um, perhaps, we don't know what these lines actually represent, but they may represent a new, a new metaphor, a new insight, uh, a new way to connect the dots, quite literally. So this is a very powerful image of um, how the brain is temporarily rewired. What we don't know is what survives of that rewiring, because you do go back to baseline, but somewhat changed. Yes, and the somewhat changed is, is where it gets incredibly interesting, this sense of the dissolution of the self. I mean, one of the things you write about, which I wasn't really aware that Bill W., the founder of AA, took psychedelics and very much wanted people in AA to do it. Yeah, he, he brought it to the board. He brought it to the board, and they didn't want to do it. But and you can understand why. I completely was, understand a, why. But it is about, mixer. I mean, some of the things that you then talk about, you know, if, if we accept a disillusion of the self and your ability to stand away from yourself, then you have to say, is there another consciousness? Right. And, and then it gets extremely into the God yeah. of your, I mean, the word, the God of your understanding. Yeah. How did it change your mind, that sense? Oh, that's a long story, um, <laughs> but I'll try to do it in a succinct way. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I found curious, because um, uh, people close to me are in, in AA also, is that the, whenever I would go to meetings with these members of my family, or this member of my family, I, would, I was always struck by the religiosity, what I took to be this Christian undertone mm. to it. And as a Jew, I always felt a little uncomfortable with that. Um, but it turns out that the idea of the higher power, which I thought was just a way to kind of soften the edge of, you know, the Christian God, was the result of a psychedelic experience. Yes. And it's that higher power, the one I recognized. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, it is the same. I mean, you say, you know, everybody's trip is individual, but in fact there's an enormous amount of common things yeah. which are about the divorce from the ego, yeah. the sense of something and what, else. And what survives the, and the what death survives of the ego. The ego. Yeah. And, and it raises so many... Yeah. Questions about well, yeah, spirituality and yeah. So, by way of background, I'm not a spiritual person, or never was a spiritual person. I, I'm kind of a, a materialist philosophically. Um, I've always thought of myself as spiritually retarded, and um, and I'm somewhat jealous of spiritual people, but I, you know, not a believer. And 
I assume that to be spiritual would mean to give up on the laws of nature, and it would mean that you essentially believed in the supernatural, which I didn't believe in. I very much didn't believe in. I had an experience on psilocybin, a guided psilocybin trip, um, in which I uh, underwent the complete dissolution of ego. Um, I was trying to simulate the experiences that the people were having in these, in these studies at Johns Hopkins and NYU and Imperial, so I took a similar kind of dose, and I was with an underground guide. We, ha we have these characters Can you just explain what an yeah, underground so guide is? When I started doing this, I was eager to have the experience at a certain point. I was kind of envious of the people who had had it, and, uh, and I was psychedelically naive. I mean, I had, hadn't had a big psychedelic experience in my teens or 20s when you're supposed to have it, and um, for a variety of reasons, but um, uh, I determined that I wanted to do it, to really understand it in order to write about it, and also because I was kind of jealous of these people who'd had these big transformative experiences that I was interviewing. Um, but I couldn't get into the trials. I didn't qualify. They weren't looking for healthy normals, which I flattered myself to think that was my category. Um, they were looking for alcoholics and smoking, people who were smokers, and, and uh, a whole lot of other categories. People with 10,000 hours of meditation could not qualify for that. So, but I, I started to learn that there was an underground in America of uh, a community of therapists who were working illegally in many, many parts of the country, and they were often people who were doing it back when it was legal, um, uh, whether it was MDMA, ecstasy, or psilocybin, LSD, and they had continued because they got such good results. They were loath to give it up, and they were willing to risk their freedom uh, by continuing. And so I was able, you know, as a journalist, to kind of like talk my way mm -hmm. into this community and began to meet people. And then I began interviewing people, looking for somebody I felt comfortable enough. Because I approached this with a lot of trepidation, not having had a big psychedelic experience. And I was really worried. And... Um, uh, and it was my nature to, you know, be cautious and do my due diligence and everything. And I did learn a lot about the risks, and we can talk about that later. Um, but I satisfied myself that this was something I could safely do and, and should do. And I interviewed people I did not have confidence in, um, people whose attitude toward what they were doing didn't, didn't make me feel I could trust them with what could be a, you know, you're very vulnerable in the midst of a of a psychedelic experience. I found somebody I really liked. I found several people I really liked, but one in particular, and I had this experience on um, psilocybin with. It was, a, it was like four or five grams of psilocybin, which is a big dose. And at a certain point, um, well, I'll walk you through it in a little bit of detail. So the experience started out badly, um, and the music was really, really sucked. And um, the guy, one of the problems with the underground guides is they're, they're really kind of new agey, human potential movement types of people. And, um, and they like music that wasn't my cup of tea. I mean, if I was getting a, a, a massage at a very nice spa, this music would have been fine. But for deep mental <laughs> excavation, it was all wrong. It was an artist named Thierry David, um, whom I'd never heard of. I later looked him up, and he was thrice nominated for Best Chill Groove Album. <laughs> Note, only nominated. <laughs> He's never won. Um, and it sounded to me, it turned out not to be, but it sounded to me like this electronica. And every note uh, on this machine, or so it sounded to me, generated another black stalactite or stalagmite. 
um, these little projections started appearing all over my environment. And it was like the material in a recording sound booth, um, you know, foam. Um, and it was very sleek and black. And it wasn't scary. It just was unpleasant and unvaried. And I was stuck in this world for a very long time. And I asked my guide to change the music. She did. I still was stuck. And I, and I started to get this rising anxiety that I was going to be trapped here all afternoon in this dystopic video game. And, and this was, I wanted to be outside. I wanted new imagery. And so I decided I needed a break. I needed to check in on reality, make sure it was still existing. And uh, so I took off my eye shades. And, and it's amazing how you can get out of the experience or partially out of the experience. Um, and suddenly I was like reassured to see the furniture of everyday life, you know, windows, walls, doors, floors. It was like great. And, um, uh, but everything was like jeweled with light in a way it had never been before. And, and all these beams of light were coming right to me. I also had to pee, so I, uh, uh, Mary, my guide, helped me to the, to the bathroom. And I went in and I was very careful not to look at the mirror. Um, somebody has told me there's an expression for this called trip face. <laughs> I learned that from the Psychedelic Society last night. Um, and uh, so I didn't look at the mirror. Um, I produced this spectacular crop of diamonds um, at, that I was very proud of and then went back to my mattress or futon, whatever it was, and, and started to lie down. And Mary said, do you want a booster dose? Um, and I thought, well, maybe a little more would get me out of this place I was in. And so, and then I looked at her for the first time, and she had been transformed from uh, this blonde, kind of Nordic-looking woman with high cheekbones into a Mexican Indian. She had, she was, she had black hair, weathered, dark face, uh, and I knew who she was. She'd become Maria Sabina, who's a very important figure in the history of psychedelics. She was the uh, Mexican uh, Mazatec Indian who gave Gordon Wasson the first Westerner, we think, to have a, a psilocybin experience in 1955 in Oaxaca. And it was a, something I had researched, and so I'd seen pictures of her. And Mary had turned into her, and she gave me this mushroom, and her hand was like leather, this dark brown leather. And I didn't want to tell Mary what had happened to her. Um, <laughs> later, it turned out she was incredibly flattered. Um, uh, and so I took the extra dose and ate it slowly with a with chocolate. It's very good to eat it with chocolate. And, um, and then this thing happened. I went back under and um, I saw myself um, blasted into little slips of paper, like post-its. But I was fine with it. This other consciousness you're alluding to, there was another perspective mm -hmm. that survived the death of me. And, um, and it was fine with the fact I had been scattered to the winds. And I didn't have a desire to pile myself back together. And then I looked out again, and I was spread over the landscape like a coat of paint or butter. And, um, and again, I, it was fine. There was this dis disinterested, uninvested perspective that was untroubled by whatever happened. And I think that was the consciousness that many of the people who were dying experienced that allowed them to feel differently about... Because their sense of a self had became less important, or their sense of it being an individuated self became much less important. And you know, to the extent you can expand your understanding of, or the boundaries of what is yourself, to take in more than this mm -hmm. meat sack, 
is, uh, is, is, can make it easier to die, I think. And I think in the past, many people, of course, did identify so deeply with their, their families, their village, their, you know, their landscape, um, that they didn't have this sense of isolation, this individualism that I think makes death particularly hard in the West. So um, I don't know what that consciousness was. You know, Aldous Huxley said it was the, the, the mind at large, and he posited that this was a, a consciousness that's a property of the universe. Uh, it exists outside our brains, mm -hmm. and we tune into it. I, I don't find that so persuasive. I, I tend to s assume that my brain came up with this too. Um, but it was, uh, there was something very comforting about it and something very... Uh, freeing about it. Um, so spiritual experience you, you, you began by asking about. Um, I found that what happened when you were able to put down the defenses and all the armature of your ego is that you can connect in a different way to the world. Um, I had another experience where I was able to connect with plants in a very profound way that I had never been able to before. I really had a sense of them as having their own subjectivity. That I wasn't the only subject in my garden. There were like lots mm -hmm. of subjects in my garden. And they were benign and regarding me as I regarded them. Um, and that this sense that consciousness is spread a little more evenly over the world than humans generally think. Because we generally think we have a monopoly on consciousness. And so there is that connection. And then there's the connection with other people, this, these very powerful feelings of love for the people mm -hmm. in your life. So I think that I, I, it forced me to reinterpret what spiritual means. I had thought that spiritual, the antithesis of spiritual was material. Yeah. And you were either materialist or you believed in the supernatural. But I realized that's not it, at least for me. The opposite of spiritual is egotistical. And to the extent you can... Um, diminish your ego and your defenses. And, you know, ego has a lot of important things to do. The ego got the book written. The ego is, you know, helpful. Um, but it also is a very harsh ruler. And to the extent you, and it builds walls, and to the extent you can tune that down, you can connect in a much more profound way with other people, with nature, with the universe. And that, I realized, for me, is spiritual experience.